Hello and welcome to ISP, the Internet School Podcast. I'm Ellie Marshall. And I'm Eve Ahern. We're both students at the Oxford Internet Institute here at the University of Oxford. And this week, we're speaking with Nicholas Federici, a DPhil candidate at the OII who focuses on ICT for D. Right, so ICT for D stands for Information Communication Technology for Development. And we're looking forward to speaking to Nicholas because we've yet to touch on this important topic on the podcast of the role of internet in development. Right, and so there's such a rich history, a parallel history if you want, of the development of communications technologies and nations. You know, I'd argue the best way to think about the development of the US, Canada, or colonial Africa is through the development of the railway and telegraph. You know, these big infrastructure projects are a great way to understand the socio-political and geographic nature of technology which, as we're continually reminded, is never divorced from a specific context. And now, which Nicholas is going to expand on as we move to world, towards a world of hubs and entrepreneurship, thinking about how smaller ICT projects can impact the development of a region is just super interesting. Right, so as Ali mentioned, his specific work focuses on hubs and innovation. And I think it's interesting because a lot of his research is ultimately on the hype of technology versus the reality of that. And to some effect, that's what both, similar to what both of our research does, albeit in very different contexts, and the research of what a lot of people at the OII do as well. There's inevitably so much, um, people love to love new technology, and that always raises a question of, is is this technology deserving of this love? Yeah, and it's one of those things where like, you know, I don't know how to pronounce his name, but Avengi Morozov or Morozov. How to click everything. Yeah. How to save everything, click here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, like, you know, you can obviously, because the world is a horrible place, like, you, it's easy to take a negative view of ICT for D and be like, oh, that's ICT for D hasn't really done anything for the world and um, is just all hype. But at the same time, and I have to admit, that's kind of the perspective I had coming into the OII. But after thinking about these things more, you start to realize that. It is so nuanced and that, um, you know, there are really amazing things that happen because of technology and you can't just criticize it because it hasn't eradicated the world's inequality issues immediately. So it's all all continuity and change. It's all interesting. Okay, great. So, right, here's our interview with Nicholas. My name is Nicolas Friderizzi. I'm a DPhil PhD candidate here at the Oxford Internet Institute in my second year. And I also work with Mark Graham on the GeoNet project, which I guess we'll talk a little bit about today. Can you tell us about your current research project on local technological innovations in Sub-Saharan Africa? Sure. So I guess there's two uh, streams of my work at the moment. So that's my dissertation research, and then there's the research on the GeoNet project. For my dissertation research, I look at um, digital entrepreneurship across Africa and specifically the role of technology innovation hubs. So these are these new support institutions and organizations that have come up that people are very, very excited about. And so I wanted to cover Sub-Saharan Africa as broadly as I can, um, but obviously I can't travel to every country for my dissertation, so I chose three uh, countries, three city case studies to be precise. So I went to uh, Kigali in, in Rwanda, to Harare in Zimbabwe, and to uh, Accra in Ghana. So three cities in very different regions. And so the dissertation tries to uh, probe into this idea. Can digital entrepreneurship happen in Africa? How can it be supported? Uh, which conditions need to be in place? Which conditions will, will hamper it? 
And so, you know, more broadly speaking, I guess it, it you know, checks this idea, can economic development and this economic transformation that everyone is talking about uh, happen in the context of internet innovation, in the context of uh, software and, and, and uh, content innovation. And on that note, how would you define, how do you define a hub? That is uh, a very difficult question. I approached this very naively. So I came from um, a program that's called InfoDev, that's a World Bank program. Um, and sort of in this practitioner and policy world, the world, the word is being thrown around quite, quite, quite easily. And sort of people think, oh, a hub, it's sort of about people collaborating and innovation. And, you know, that's good. Let's fund that. That sounds good. When you look into it in a bit more depth and when you try to sort of really understand the concept and you know the mechanisms you realize wow this is actually really complicated this organizational form is like something we we have not seen before there have been these things called incubators um, where it's sort of more standardized you get a business mentor you get sort of business support for your startup and then hopefully you're more successful there have been science parks that are sort of based on the idea that there's economic clusters so you put startups next to each other and they learn from each other and there's knowledge spillovers but this idea of a hub as an organization, that, that's really new. And so we've grappled with this question, not only myself, but, but several other researchers. What are these things? Why are they so popular for you know, maybe the last couple of years now? And we put out a few blog posts. So as far as we've gotten is, it's definitely about collaboration. It's definitely about community. So it's more about you know, just a few people in a space. It's people forming a community that has an identity, that you know, they, they have a shared interest in and in a common mindset. And I think most importantly, it's about diversity. So, you know, there's this ecosystem idea, uh, different stakeholders, very different stakeholders have to come together for innovation to happen, not only the entrepreneurs, but also development organizations and the government and, uh, you know, mentors and investors, of course. So if that's the idea that all these different actors have to come together, the hub is now the vehicle to bring these very diverse actors together, to provide an infrastructure, to provide a space um, for the different actors to come together and then hopefully um, you know, start projects and, and collaborate. I guess that's the hub idea. The reality is often a different one, but I guess that's the hub concept that gets everyone excited, that you get this multi-stakeholder, diverse collaboration. Mm -hmm. And I read your, your blog post about attempting to pinpoint a specific definition. I'm curious about what, why, why is it so critical to have that precise definition? Is it because of the funding issue that you were mentioning earlier or something else or just yeah it's a, it's a good question because <clears throat> I think you know academics can get carried away with defining things and probably into things that <clears throat> are not actually you know relevant for the real world or for the practitioners you know that just go go ahead and do things I do think it's not it's not necessarily important to have a precise definition but I do think it's important to have a general understanding of what a hub is and how it's different from these other organizations mm -hmm. institutions that I mentioned because especially in Sub-Saharan Africa, but even elsewhere, there has been a true hype and craze about this. There's this widely read uh, World Bank blog post uh, by Tim Kelly, actually my former boss, who sort of puts out this map and says there's now 100 hubs and there's this groundswell of innovation and sort of the hub term uh, and these organizations have become um, this uh, point of excitement uh, for, 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 for many people. And I think it's academia's role to, to probe into that are hubs really new? How are they new? What's exciting about them? And, you know, there's many good ideas. Collaboration sounds good. Entrepreneurship sounds good. Innovation sounds good. Digital sounds good anyway. Um, but, you know, does that excitement translate into economic development like it's supposed to? And I think 
in order to do that, you need to understand what a hub is because funding decisions are made based on that, right? So, you know, if you're a policymaker, if you're a donor, you can invest that money in hubs or you can invest that money in mm -hmm. you know, schools to, to take a simple example. So, I mean, obviously we see it in the, um, even in the developed world too. I mean, I know um, in Toronto, there's so much money being pumped into uh, the startup scene. And I think cities outside of Silicon Valley are really um, using the rhetoric of Silicon Valley of hubs. And, you know, I, everyone wants to be the new Y Combinator. And I, I know that that happens course in the developed world as well and in Toronto at least one of the things that I've also seen happen is from a social capital standpoint being associated with a startup being associated with a hub comes with a certain level of sexiness and I'm just wondering if there is a you know burgeoning hub scene as well in sub-saharan Africa are you seeing that effect with social capital as well where, where people want to be associated with these things and it feels like even the even being involved in the hub feels like social mobility. Is that true in your research? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's one of the core arguments, right? These these hubs give uh, entrepreneurs uh, recognition and representation, uh, and you know the argument goes that especially in sub-Saharan Africa, that's important because the entrepreneurs don't have that social capital, in particular, to investors. Uh, with regard to investors and international context to to begin with and the mm -hmm. other institutions that are there that are weak or weaker in the than in, in developed countries so so the hubs are needed um, so I think that argument is very compelling and it works for some entrepreneurs but in the research that I've conducted I think I did uh, 60 interviews with with entrepreneurs in these different uh, places so that's fairly you know good overview um, the, the finding clearly is that hubs work for some entrepreneurs, but not for others. And they also work in very different ways. So what you mentioned is absolutely true for a certain niche group of mm -hmm. entrepreneurs. And those are usually the very nascent ones. They're just out of university. Um, you know, they have heard about this thing, technology entrepreneurship. They want to try their, try their feet in it. Um, they know a little bit of coding, but they don't know much else. So for them, it's very you know, useful to go to the hub, to have like-minded people, to have this exposure to these ideas of technology entrepreneurship, to get to international context. And for them, it's sort of you know, a point of pride to be part of this community. But then there's also you know, other groups of entrepreneurs, and maybe to, you know, to name one example, um, how I would cluster them, um, are the entrepreneurs that are already quite business savvy and also technologically savvy. Um, and they often look at hubs actually the other way around, that it's sort of, this is a playground, this is for beginners, this is sort of the fluff, they often mm. say. This is where the donors come and, you know, uh, want to put up a nice pet project, but this is not about serious business. Mm. We are independent, we can do this ourselves, I know how to code, I have my own context, uh, and the hub actually distorts ideas of what true entrepreneurship is, of what true business is, and sort of how this more market-driven, uh, I guess sometimes it's sort of libertarian in form, uh, entrepreneurship should work. So mm. that is a good point and argument for hubs and it works for some, but I think that's definitely not the whole story. Interesting. And so to get a kind of broader lay of the land, what, what's unique about the ICT ecosystem of Sub-Saharan Africa? So I think a starting point would be to sort of look into the different ecosystems that are there. So even the word ecosystem is a bit, you know, sort of a, 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 a jargon word, but no, no, there is some conceptual uh, value to it, def definitely. Um, but, you know, why I've done these three case studies, for instance, is because the, the conditions vary dramatically, right? Africa is one of the 
uh, uh, most culturally diverse continents and has uh, hundreds of, of, of languages and um, you know often it gets reduced to South Africa and maybe Kenya and maybe Nigeria and then all the other uh, places you know the global margins as Mark Ram, my supervisor likes to call them get forgotten and how you know conditions are very different there uh, gets forgotten so I guess sort of this is the, the starting point, but there is definitely also a sub-Saharan African uh, uh, element to it. There's organizations like BC for Africa uh, and Afri Labs and a few other sort of pan-African organizations that, that try to put this together. Um, if you want to compare how that ecosystem um, compares to Silicon Valley or European uh, uh, context, I think one of the issues that often comes up is that there's just no finance at all sort of it's sort of the the idea you're in silicon valley it's so easy to you know raise several million dollars and get uh you know multiple million dollar valuations and that that's not the case uh, uh in, in in africa and so i think a lot of the startup scene there relies on bootstrapping a lot more so it's about you know gaining these skills struggling you know putting out something and then being more revenue driven so they basically need to make the money themselves to fund their startup um, and sort of the you know the entrepreneurs that have made it will often tell you these young entrepreneurs that say we need more capital they don't get it you just need to make revenue and fund yourself that's how it works in africa because you know the market opportunities are just not that large there's no um, purchasing power among the consumers so you know it's a more bootstrapped, uh, sort of more hustle, struggle uh, uh, type environment, I'd say. So I just want to ask, have you done any research into um, mapping where the money comes from to go into these, you know, into these hubs? Is the money for these projects coming from outside of Africa or within? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, to, to be perfectly honest, there is no good data on this question at all it's you know people are very uh, obviously very interested in this question because you know usually if you follow the money you find you find some good answers um you know there are these things like angel list obviously that african entrepreneurs can also sign up to but it's it's very rudimentary and we don't have a good grasp of this at all um what's fair to say is that um grants from development organizations uh, and governments um, you know play a much uh, more important role um, uh, there than elsewhere, especially in this sort of, uh, uh, you know, very early stage, uh, my, my former boss liked to call it, for, for an entrepreneur in, in, in Kigali. So these little amounts have actually often come from grants, from competition, uh, from competitions and so forth. And so at the stage that you would usually uh, refer to if you talk about angel investing and then VC uh, uh, investments. Um, there, especially VC for Africa, and then local angel uh, networks have formed, has remained on a local level. And I think that's the same as in Silicon Valley and everywhere else, right? There's this, uh, uh, you know, famous paper that says that, you know, VC capital always stays local. Um, you know, that should be surprising, you know, that's surprising because maybe, you know, money on, on, on Wall Street works in a different way and it's a globally integrated market. With startup capital and VC capital, it's not like that because you need a connection to the entrepreneur, you need to mentor them. And that's been, you know, I think by and large the same, the same in Africa, just that the amounts are much smaller, uh, that it's sort of a much more careful process because the risks are so high and that we don't really have any compelling data to, to, to track that. And can you outline again a bit more specifically how your three case studies compare and perhaps why those three cities in particular? Yeah, uh, absolutely. So 
I'm, I was trying to get um, contexts that are as different as possible. So the idea is if you have very different con contexts and still things work the same, uh, the processes are the same, the, 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 the questions are the same, then you can generalize that, you know, at least across Sub-Saharan Africa, and you have a better idea of what's, what's, what's going on. And so, you know, Rwanda is obviously, uh, you know, the stereotypical case of the de developmental state. The government is very powerful, it's very important, it's very admired. You know, Kagame government has sort of brought Rwanda back on the map, has sort of been, you know, very much in favor of ICT, pushed this, pushed this agenda, invested in broadband. You get, you know, uh, fast 3G in the mountains. It's, it's quite amazing. And so there's a lot of um, uh, hope and, and a push for, to put RUN on the map, to develop RUN. It's sort of a national agenda. Everyone buys into that and sort of believes that the government can lead this effort. Um, uh, uh, you know, but everyone has to come together to push, uh, push this Rwandan agenda. Um, Zimbabwe, very different. Uh, you know, uh, the, the, the Mugabe government sort of, you know, pretty uh, 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 vicious dictator and you know, there's political repression uh, and, and, and so forth, and that doesn't necessarily uh, relate to the entrepreneurship scene so much, but at the end of the day, it affects them because, um, you know, it affects their market opportunities. Zimbabwe is economically very depressed and the economy is going down despite sort of the overall trend in Africa that everything's growing. Um, and, you know, there's uh, uh, trade regulations and embargoes and, you know, entrepreneurs it's sort of against all odds. That's mm -hmm. that's how it seemed to me. The environment is just not favorable at all, and they're still trying. And then Accra, uh, you know, in the context of Ghana, that's one of the countries that has been one of these rising stars. That has sort of this uh, lower middle income country status now, and sort of this growing middle class argument is going on there as well. There are markets. There are some successful startups already. There are sort of these role models um, um, there, and so um, Ghana is sort of the case of. Uh, a more favorable environment, at least for African African standards. And and do you see your the purpose of your research as more documentary, or are you seeing it as action oriented? What do you see the role your your own role as a researcher in this context? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great question. It's a very um, difficult one as well. I I feel that <clears throat> the deeper you move into these issues the more you realize how complex they are, uh, also how uh, they're related to sometimes even ideologies or at least sort of strong opinions about you know, how entrepreneurship works, how economic development works, even how empowerment works, how voice works. So the, more, the deeper you go into it, the more you become careful of not making sort of any casual recommendations. Um, however, I think that's also the opportunity to make recommendations and to you know derive implications because often these discourses and these debates are being led without the sort of deeper you know understanding and, and, and reflection that, that academia can can bring. So in my blog posts and in my sort of outreach and dissemination with, with practitioners and the funding organizations, that's what I try to bring. You know, I, I, I tell them there's not going to be a clear-cut implication, this is how you do a hub or you should do hubs or not, but there's going to be some probing and that might advance your thinking because I will highlight things to you that you might not have thought about because you have this very sort of clear-cut, sometimes even simplistic idea of how things work. That's not actually how they work. Here's how they actually work and maybe you can learn from that. So. It's both. It's you know giving a voice to, to, to the entrepreneurs that are often not heard and just documenting 
these these stories and these struggles, and then you know carefully deriving implications from them. I guess. So, as a subdiscipline, how do you explain ICT for D to outsiders? Um, that's uh, another very difficult question. <laughs> ICT for D um, has had sort of an identity crisis or sort of multiple identity crises over over the years. So um, there's definitely ongoing debate: is it even a field? What defines it as a field? Uh, who's in it? Who, who's outside of it? Um, and so you know, we, we're I guess an example of how ICT4D can, can be moved forward. So when I say we, I mean uh, the GeoNet project and the work that we're doing here. You know, we try to embed interesting arguments from the ICT4D world, that is, you know, how can technology be used to, to, to stimulate uh, development, and embed them in other academic disciplines, you know, like, like geography or like uh, different areas of management science. Uh, and I think this is the way forward for ICT4D, because the basic question you know, you put technology in, you get development out, how does that work, how can technology be used for development, has sort of turned out over the last 20 years to, you know, either not be the right question, or it doesn't work, or it depends, and, you know, I, uh, you know, have interest in the field still, and I read the journals and so forth, but I think sometimes it can also be limiting, because you're stuck with this developmental view and the focus on the technology and you know I think other academic disciplines in the dialogue between them um, have, have, have more to offer and that's yeah. what we're trying to do. And it's also so interesting how um, internet scholars have such a short-term memory and I remember when Mark came into I think our social dynamics class to talk about we did like 20 minutes on ICT3D in, in our program it feels like but he you know talked to us about the railway and you know, the impact of roads on, on Africa and in many ways that in its that development, although it's the railway, like has a lot of communications impacts and all of that. And so it's what I'm trying to say is basically ICT for D has a much larger history than the past twenty years, regardless of what sometimes academia wants you to think. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And people get carried away with uh, you know, the, the, the tools and to me, it's striking that you know not only uh, you know academia has a short-term memory, but also practitioners have a short-term memory. You know, if you follow the different blogs uh, over and over again, you read about sort of the failure of ICT4D, and it just doesn't work because there's always social context and it's always embedded mm -hmm. and it's always complex. And still, this idea of technology as a savior, this amazing technological innovation, improves things radically and improves people's lives is so compelling and so mm -hmm. logical, has so much face value, that it is being perpetuated and perpetuated and perpetuated. You know, you will read on these blogs, you know, every, every day you can pull out something. This technology was put in and, you know, people, uh, things were, got more transparent and lives were improved. Yeah. That argument is just very, um, you know, hard to prove wrong. And I guess it's very closely related sort of technological determinism. And yeah. it has just a lot of appeal to think about the technology and see it as a savior in the act. Yeah, and I think um, the other thing that interests me is that in a lot of the rhetoric um, that I've seen, it's, there's sometimes the perception that development happens in a vacuum and that if one technology isn't in a country or in a region yet, it can just follow the same pattern of deployment. But, you know, I think something that we're seeing with the development of zero-rated phones in India is that, you know, individuals, because of the network society, are have a certain level of savvy that, you know, might not have existed when Telegram got rolled out for the first time. But people, I think, 
across the world have a different understanding of, I don't know, I think what I'm trying to say is that globalization in, in some ways has like changed the baseline and that you can't just go in and assume that the same development pattern of rolling out 3G in one country will work in another and that that's what even people want. I think that's right. There's always permutations and adaptations and sort of societies are a moving target. You know, yeah. it's, there's, you know things are always going to be uh, different in a different implementation context. And I guess that's also you know, what drives our research and my research. There's this idea that Silicon Valley is out there sort of as the role model, mm -hmm. as the standard, how everyone should be doing it. Uh, and even, you know, many actors in Africa would, you know, believe that and try to learn from Silicon Valley and copy that. But then at the end of the day, it doesn't work out like that. There's exactly, always yeah. this, you know, different context that, that comes in and that changes things. And I find that uh, fascinating. But it also makes, of course, the implications harder because mm -hmm. then there is no best practice. There is no clear cup solution. And you need this adapted uh, uh, knowledge, I guess. What will we put in our reports if there are no <laughs> best practices? So how is this project shaped, or how is your project shaped by the fact that you're doing it within the Oxford Internet Institute as opposed to doing it within a geography department or a policy department or a development department? Yeah, I think it makes, it makes a huge difference. Uh, you know, when I applied, I looked at um, very interesting activities at the development department at uh, Queen Elizabeth House house here as well at the business school that has more and more interest in uh, in Africa and entrepreneurship there. But the OII is just the only place that offers this, uh, uh, you know, almost boundaryless multidisciplinarity. So you can come in, in my case I was interested in a phenomenon, right? Uh, I was interested in hubs uh, and how this plays out in Africa. Um, I came from, I guess, a practitioner background with this World Bank program. So, you know, I wasn't interested in any academic discipline per se. I wanted to study this phenomenon and understand it. And so the OII allowed me to, you know, pick the academic discipline later, to look into the questions that interest me, the empirical questions that interest me, and then see which academic disciplines have the most to offer to explain this. And so, you know, this is why it wasn't ICT for D for me, uh, and you know, it wasn't exactly geography. Some elements of that were were, were interesting. Um, but then, you know, this allowed me also to borrow from, from, from management science and, you know, uh, broadly from, from internet, internet science. And, uh, you know, it makes it more challenging because you have to reconcile all these disciplines and, you know, academic, the academic world certainly doesn't, doesn't work like that because there are these silos in these different disciplines. But it also makes it more uh, exciting because you have that opportunity to borrow from very different perspectives. And I know that we just talked about the, the problematic nature of the soundbite, but <laughs> what, what are some of your preliminary findings so far from your, your dissertation research? Yeah, so um, I, I'm trying to capture the, the, the complexity. So as you say, it's very difficult to sort of boil it down. But I guess, um, you know, the most important finding that we already touched, touched on is that uh, hubs are so many different things for so many different groups. So this idea of, um, as a donor, as a policy body, I invest money into the hub and get this impact out, simply doesn't make sense. Hubs are embedded in these networks. Some entrepreneurs go to a networking event and then never come back. Some entrepreneurs hang out at the hub every day, uh, you know, get to know their, their co-founders there, and you know, it's vital for their, for their startup success. So to understand the nature of these organizations that are 
so to say, more embedded and that are networked and that uh, uh, you know, are complex in this way that they're also much more adaptive than, than other organizations. Similarly, what are the findings so far for the GeoNet project? The GeoNet uh, project is, is in its early stages, so uh, at the moment it's the phase of uh, mapping the knowledge economy as, as comprehensively as possible, so collecting all these indicators that uh, you know, are supposed to measure innovation and the digital, uh, the digital uh, economy. And then in the following work package that, that will follow now, one is called Innovation Hubs and that's more closely related to the topics of my dissertation. Uh, and the other one is more about low value creation like micro work uh, and, and click work and, and, and these factors. Um, and you know, I don't think there are sort of solid findings at this point, um, but they're sort of increasing nuance into you know, the argument that, that Mark Graham and others at the OII and elsewhere have, have been making over the last years that um, you know, the internet doesn't shrink space, it doesn't take out distance. Um, content on the internet is very localized, participation on the internet is very localized. And so in the GeoNet project now that, that gets nuanced in the context, for instance, of uh, GitHub and you know, software development, um, so, you know, where you see, or science production, where do academic articles come from? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there you see basically a similar pattern that is very heavily biased towards the US and Europe, and that Africa, despite all the you know, hype and hope, um, is still sort of fledgling and, you know, the, the activity is very, is very limited. Um, and so, you know, I guess that over the next years, we're going to, you know, add, add even more detail to that. Where is anything happening? Is that urban-rural divided? Is that only in Anglophone countries? Um, you know, is that in certain clusters across Africa and certain regions? Um, and to sort of to tease that out, because basically, um, you know, in this context of, of the digital economy, we know very little, I would say almost zero, about the African continent. And yeah. I guess that's the purpose of the DNA project, to you know, at yeah. least put a dent in that. I feel like you just came up with the best title for an ICT 3D book, Hype and Hope, <laughs> like, and then subtitled, like, The Case of... <laughs> that's, that's definitely uh, a very important theme because, you know, as we said before, despite sort of these failures and complexities that people have unearthed over the years and sort of experienced over the years, the, the, the hype and hope is still there. You know, you see it in, in, in a country like Rwanda. Basically, the whole national economic development strategy is bets on the internet. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that certainly hasn't proven wrong, but, you know, it's also, uh, you know, you, you, you take a great risk if you do that. And you sort yeah. of bet a lot of uh, uh, your, your economic capital, your human capital on this question of the internet. And so if that makes Africa... Uh, particularly interesting because you know Rwanda is not the only case. Um, you know the idea is that the internet can connect Africa and can transform it. So there's always this discourse around transformation, uh, about revolution, um, about digitization, uh, about these shrinking distances, and that is obviously very appealing for policymakers in Africa and for for um, people in Africa because there's an opportunity now to leapfrog, which is another mm -hmm. sort of discourse, yeah. and to catch up. And sort of this is, um, I guess, the, the interesting backdrop for, for, for the project. Yeah. Cool. So on that note, is there anything you would like to recommend to our listeners that they could read? Yeah. Uh, when you asked me for, for reading recommendations, uh, you know, because, I, as I discussed, it's sort of very multidisciplinary. It's always hard for me to pinpoint mm -hmm. uh, anything. But I'd say what has been uh, influential or sort of a good read for me 
um, was this article, I think it came out in January this year, 2015, by Jennifer Senior. Uh, I think it was in New York Magazine, um, in the Science of Us or something like that category. And uh, it was called To the Office with Love. What do we give up when we all become freedom-seeking, self-determining, autonomous entrepreneurs? And it was uh, influential for me because at that time, I had just come back from field work. You know, I had heard all these very different opinions about hubs, about co-working, about uh, entrepreneurship. And certainly if you're, you know, in the Silicon Valley context, if you're in uh, a Western context, entrepreneurship has this very positive connotation. And independence, for me, certainly has a very positive connotation. And she, you know, makes a very compelling case that she speaks sort of for the silent majority of, I actually love my office space, my cubicle. It's, you know, a safe space. I have my co-workers there. I have my colleagues there. It gives me an identity. It gives me a structure. I don't want to be an entrepreneur. I don't want to be independent. And it's so, you know, she, she pulls out a lot of entrepreneurship research and puts it together very nicely to say, you know, entrepreneurship is a great idea and it works for some, but does it have to work for everyone? Should we not, you know, also cherish our office and our, our cubicle? So that, that was a great article. That's great. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. My pleasure. Thank you. So, Eve, what do you have to recommend this week? Once again, I'm going to recommend an article by Robinson Meyer at The Atlantic. He is just always killing it. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> okay, this article is called Who Owns Your Face? And it's all about facial recognition and, and specifically exploring the question of whether companies need to ask your permission before scanning your face. He notes that this is a particularly important question because it's both difficult to conceal yourself from facial recognition and, more importantly, very difficult to change your face to make yourself non-recognizable once you've already been scanned. Oh man, that's super interesting. What about you, Allie? So this week I'm recommending an incredible new academic paper called Automated Experiments on Ad Privacy Settings, A Tale of Opacity, Choice, and Discrimination. And so basically these computer scientists from Carnegie Mellon created a way of testing the um, AI learning part of Google AdWords um, to prove that yes, the system does discriminate. So what they did basically is, you know, in the Google um, settings where it tells you that like, okay, we know that you're in the range of like 24 or 28, we can tell you're a woman and you can like turn those privacy settings on and off. It basically tests that against how the AdWords system uh, learns your behaviors and then what it, what it presents to you. And anyway, um, one of the examples in the paper of the type of discrimination that they found is that men are more likely to see ads for higher paying jobs than women are. And they say that like, while this isn't directly intentionally, um, you know, sexist because it's a computer and it's AI learning, what it does show is that AdWords has the ability to replicate or reinforce existing inequalities. Um, and so what they say is that they found that definitely Google AdWords has non-normative discrimination built in and non-normative because some types of discrimination are good, you know, like affirmative action, for example. Anyway, it's a really interesting read. I think that it's, I wish I wrote it. And I also wish that I had found it before I wrote my, many of my papers this year because it um, has a really nice technical way of explaining what I think a lot of people working on digital inequalities have been trying to say for, for years. So that's it for this week. 
Um, I hope you enjoyed the episode and we look forward to next week.